Genesis 1.26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And down uh, Genesis 2.15 The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, uh, of it you shall surely die. Well, hi. I am glad to be here tonight. Uh, This topic is near and dear to my heart. Uh, my business, my vocation, is to um, help Christian CEOs and owners live out their calling as the leaders of their companies and to advance the kingdom of God through their influence and their span of influence. So uh, because of that, I spent a lot of time thinking about work and vocation and um, have a few things to share with you tonight about it. So the text uh, was actually suggested by Kevin, and I'm glad he did, because the sixth day of creation is truly uh, the foundational document for our calling and our our, uh, mission to advance the kingdom uh, through our gifts, skills, talents, and abilities that God gave us. So, um, and we see that in the way he dealt with Adam and Eve in the garden. And so we're going to take that and then kind of do a survey throughout the rest of Scripture as well and uh, see where that takes us. So let me start out by, by asking a couple questions. When, when people ask how they can glorify God with their lives, how can they make their lives count, they're usually not told going to business When students asked, hey, when I pick my career, how can I do that in a way that will honor God and glorify God? They're not usually told, go into the business world. When people generally ask other people, what do you do for a living? And the answer is, well, I work at such and such a place, or I've got this particular uh, vocation that I do. They're not usually responded to by saying, wow, What a wonderful way to glorify God. But in essence, that's going to be my thesis for tonight, is that we can glorify God 
through the way we work. We usually equate glorifying God with worship activity like singing or praying or obeying the Ten Commandments. Um, Certainly, the Bible says a lot about um, worship, faith, evangelism, generosity, moral living. But today, we're going to talk about vocation. How we earn a living or voluntarily serve others significantly. That's what I'm going to basically define vocation as being. How we earn a living or voluntarily serve others significantly is our vocation. And it is absolutely a primary way to bring glory to God. And in fact, the way we work or labor can be God-glorifying worship in and of itself. Let me say that again. The way we work or labor can be God-glorifying worship. Well, from the beginning of creation, before the fall of man, we see in Genesis 1 that God ordained work as a high and holy calling. Our personal application of the principles in our text of Genesis today, as we exercise our gifts, skills, talents, and abilities, you'll hear me say that a few times tonight, gifts, skills, talents, and abilities, uh, can be our spiritual act of worship. Romans 12.1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. So let's break down that verse for a little bit. In view of, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual act of worship. So as we work... It is a spiritual act of worship, or it can be. It can also be something else, and we're going to explore that in a little bit. The danger is that we can also use our gifts, skills, talents, and abilities for selfish reasons. And that is kind of what we call idolatry, when we're doing that in a way to serve ourselves rather than God. As we do things in a way that is not pleasing to God, that is anti-worship. It's idolatry. So, now in the first couple verses of Genesis, let me grab my text here, handy dandy. Then God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So let's talk about this concept of imago Dei. It's Latin. It means in the image of God. And it's brought up several times in these first two verses of Genesis 1. Understanding the concept of Imago Dei is key to understanding why we humans have an instinctive drive to work, to create, to be productive, to save, to give, to do the thousands of things that fill our day. Because of this concept of Imago Dei. God created us in His image. So, if we want to figure out what our calling is, let's kind of take a look at what God is like. 
And that's kind of what our calling is. And that's kind of what I'm trying to get at with this concept of Imago Dei. God delights to see his character reflected, which is basically imaged like a photography image in our lives. To be in God's image is to be like God. To image God is to be like God. And to represent him on earth as we serve as his ambassador. Now, probably over a year and a half ago now, the very first sermon I ever preached in my life was on 2 Corinthians 5 and what it means to be Christ's ambassador. So that's essentially what we're called to be, his ambassador to the world. But what does an ambassador do? An ambassador represents or images the person that they're the ambassador for, which in our case is God. So in the book titled Unceasing Worship, Unceasing Worship by a man named Harold Best, um, his first chapter is titled Nobody Does Not Worship. Let's think about that again. Nobody does not worship. What is he saying by that double negative? He's saying that everybody always worships. Hmm, interesting concept. So let's figure out what that means. And again, we're kind of following on to this Imago Dei a little bit here. Before time, and even now, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are in constant communion with each other. They're constantly loving each other, communicating with each other, dealing with each other, demonstrating all of God's character and their creativity and their sovereignty and their providence. Um... They're essentially in constant communication with each other. So if we're made in God's image, we are made to be that way too. We are made to be continuous outpours. And that's, the, that's what Harold is saying in his book, Unceasing Worship. We are continuously outpouring. Now, what are we outpouring? Well, that's a good question. We're going to talk about that. But I think our vocation is the, one of the primary ways that we outpour. Um, another name for continuously outpouring is worship. And that's why, because God made us 24-7 worshipers, we can say, nobody does not worship. We are never not worshiping. Now, it says in verse 31, God saw that all he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Again, God delights in seeing us exercise our gifts, skills, talents, and abilities to His glory. But there's a caveat there. Sin came into the world. Remember, sixth day of creation before sin. God ordained work. Genesis 2.15, God put Adam in the garden before there was sin. God ordained work before the fall. Work is a high and holy calling. In verse 31, again, like I said, God saw all he made, and, and, but especially humans in his image is what he called very good. He was delighted in it. In Ephesians 5.1, Paul exhorts us all to be imitators of God as beloved children. Again, there, so I, this is not just a one-trick pony out of Genesis 1. We see this throughout the New Testament as well, this concept 
that in, in Romans 12.1 and now again in Ephesians 5.1. Be imitators of God as beloved children. God created us. God created us to experience joy when we reflect his image and imitate him. But here's the caveat. Sin darkens that. Sin darkens that beauty and that joy. So here's a few examples just to kind of drive this point home. Say I wanted to imitate God's truthfulness, so I decide I'm going to speak truth about my neighbor, but it's out of a malicious desire to harm them. I would not be glorifying God by imitating God's truthfulness, wouldn't I? Here's another example. A thief plans a very elaborate robbery. Very skillful, very intricate plan. But it doesn't bring praise to God because it's done out of selfishness, out of, out of various sins as gluttony, lust, whatever. The reason why a thief would do a robbery. But again, that thief is imitating God's divine wisdom and skill in doing an intricate plan but he's doing it for ungodly reasons. So that's why Harold Best says, nobody does not worship, but sometimes we're worshiping badly, not goodly. All right, so shifting gears a little bit now, I'm going to talk about three aspects of vocation within the context of the principles that we've discussed so far. And those three things we're going to talk about for the next few minutes are ownership, productivity, and employment. First, let's talk about ownership. In Exodus 20:15, God gave the moral command, "You shall not steal." He affirmed the validity of personal ownership of property because why would he give the command not to steal unless he ordains personal property? That I, I'm not supposed to steal that because it's someone else's. It's not mine. So unless God intended us to own personal possessions, the command to not steal makes no sense. Ownership is a fundamental way to imitate God's sovereignty over a tiny portion of the universe that he created. When we take care of possessions like our house, our car, our lawn, our businesses as a business owner, even, even our toys, children and boys and girls, when we take exercise sovereignty over our toys, we are imitating God in a small way. He gave us stewardship over these possessions. So the way we take care of them can either reflect God's glory or it cannot. Even though we own things in the eyes of the world, God really owns them. That's why some Christians call ownership stewardship, just to remind ourselves of that. But again, he's entrusted us to take care of our possessions. I recently was working on um, my cultural impact plan. And that's one of the applications I'm going to suggest today for all of us is to think about what your cultural impact plan is. How are you going to impact the culture around you? How are you going to basically advance the kingdom of God in the world? with your gifts, skills, talents, and abilities. 
But at any rate, when I was working on my cultural impact plan, one of the things I said that I'm responsible for, that God has given me sovereignty over, are my two cars. I can reflect His glory by taking care of them well, or I cannot reflect His glory by neglecting them, by not treating them well, by not changing oil when I'm supposed to, by not doing the scheduled maintenance I'm supposed to. Similarly with houses, with our toys, with our books, with everything that we've given, been given stewardship of, we have an opportunity to reflect God's glory in the way we do it. Think about this. Even small children have this instinct to own things like toys or books. How many times have you seen a kid say, that's mine? Well, sometimes we'll call them little sinners when they do that. But in actual point of fact, their instinct is to possess. God put an instinct in them to possess things. And in doing so, it's a way to reflect God's glory. So when you, next time you see your kid saying, that's mine, saying, praise God, how are you stewarding it? <laughs> but as we know, sin can distort that God-given instinct to possess by being greedy or wanting more, more than we can handle in a godly way. This is when those possessions become idols, when we hold on too tightly to those possessions. All right, good. Let's talk about the second item from the business world, and that's productivity. So, in verse 28 of Genesis 1, God says, God blessed them. That's the male and female that He created. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth. And every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. So, productivity. As we see in that text, God charges man to be fruitful and subdue and rule over or have dominion. Paul said in Colossians 3.23, to work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So as we participate anywhere along the manufactured goods supply chain, I'm going to use a little business lingo there. All the way from mining and agriculture, where, where wealth starts in the ground. When you think about it, all wealth starts in the ground. Another gift from God, by the way. <laughs> Oil, minerals, the soil that grows plants and food. All the way through that supply chain, all the way out to final assembly and then even selling, we're adding value to the world. Every step along the way, as that product is improved or processed or added to, it is adding value to that product. So as we participate in that, we are adding value. We are imitating God. If we're doing it to the glory of God. Even service industry and volunteer jobs, when you think about it, and even government jobs, also present that opportunity for our productivity to reflect God's character. Now, I, I grimaced in, in kind of joking way because many of us do work for some government entity or another, 
And that's another great way to glorify God as we serve others faithfully, as we do that, that job that we've been given to do. Remember, God ordained work from before the fall. Even small children can do this as they paint, as they make puzzles, as they build blanket forts, as they build a city made out of Lincoln Logs, like a certain someone I'm not supposed to mention because he didn't give me permission. He's sitting in the back row. <laughs> but even, even children can reflect God's glory by being productive, by building things, by adding value to the world. When children's play house, they're imitating the grown-ups around them. But they are also imitating God as they play act, being productive and fruitful members of a family and community. But as we again said, sin can mar this imaging as well if we succumb to pride or greed or gluttony. Increasing the productivity in goods and services is not morally neutral, but is designed to be fundamentally good and pleasing to God. Let's talk about a third aspect, employment. So in contrast to Marxism, the Bible does not view it as evil to hire someone to do labor for you and pay them for it. Luke 10.7 says, The worker deserves his wages. Many of Jesus' parables often excluded examples of workers and employers with no hint that the practice was inherently evil or wrong. John the Baptist told even those Roman soldiers, be content with your wages. Don't exploit your position to take advantage of others in Luke 3.15. Paying another person for their labor is uniquely human. That ability to pay others for their labor is uniquely human. It's not shared with any other creature on this earth. When this arrangement's working properly, both parties benefit. And it allows love to be expressed by both parties as well. There are multitudinous ways to reflect God's glory in employment. And this glorifies God. It's a spiritual act of worship like we saw in Romans 12.1 again. But as we have pointed out already, sin can darken those opportunities. If, if an employer is harsh or greedy or unfair and exploitive, employees can be lazy or bitter or dishonest. Another example, when a parent ties an allowance to a certain chore, both the parent and the child can reflect God's glory by the way that arrangement is structured and carried out. Didn't think of that, did you? You can glorify God in doing your chores, kiddos. Now, for most of this previous segment, I borrowed heavenly from, heavily from a book by Wayne Grudem called Business for the Glory of God. It's subtitled, The Bible's Teaching on the Moral Goodness of Business. The Bible's Teaching on the Moral Goodness of Business. I highly recommend this book. Um, as, uh, if some of you get it and start to read it, you might even recognize some of the things I've said already because, frankly, I couldn't think of any better way to say it than the way Dr. Grudem says it. So I, I need to give him credit for that. <laughs> um, 
But I highly recommend this book. Even though it's about business, it's really something that all of us could benefit from because he goes through more than just the three items that we've talked about, uh, employment, productivity, and ownership, but he also talks about seven other aspects. Um, profit, how profit is not inherently evil. Profit is necessary and good. And in fact, with no, no profit, there's no funding of missionaries and pastors. Okay, now I want to go through the Bible a little bit and just do a survey of a few business people in the Bible. And you, you'll see as you start to think about the biblical imperative to, that we can worship God in the way we work, um, you'll start to notice more and more business people in the Bible. But think about it. Adam and Eve, what was their occupation? They were gardeners, landscapers. Genesis 2.15, again, it says, God placed him in the garden. So Adam and Eve were given the task to be gardeners, landscapers. Another one, Abraham. In Genesis 12 and following, Abraham's occupation, he had a number of occupations, actually. He was more than just a livestock owner. Uh, even though he was a nomad, he was also an army general. Some people think forget about that. But there was a time where Ab- Abraham gathered a whole army and went and conquered another king. And that's when Abraham, coming back from that victory, was met by Melchizedek, and, and that figure of Christ was first introduced to the Old Testament. Um, but think about that decision that Abraham made when... He was given a choice. He knew he needed to split and let his nephew Lot go, go the separate ways because there were too many people with too, too much resources and they needed to split up. And Abraham had the choice of going down to the Verdant Valley or staying up in the hills. And he chose to trust God and stay up in the hills and let Lot go down um, to the Verdant Valley. Now, it turned out that that was not a good thing for Lot after all. Uh, so it was actually a, kind of a... A good decision by Abraham. He trusted God and it it bore fruit. Um, Another example. I like like this example a lot in in Ruth chapter 2. Boaz. If we can find Ruth in our Bible here, I'm going to turn to it. Joshua Judges Ruth. That's how I remember where it is. Right after Judges. Okay. I'm going to read a little bit from Ruth chapter 2 here. Um, so, backstory: Ruth has come with her do- with her mother-in-law to back to Israel, um, and they need to go gather food. And Ruth says, "Well, it's custom to go to the fields and glean." So she told her mother-in-law Naomi, "I'm going to go do that. Um, pray that I find favor wherever I go." And so she went out. So Ruth went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. And they called back, the Lord bless you. There's an employer-employee relationship with a lot of blessing going on. Boaz was probably a pretty good boss for his employees to respond that way to his greeting. 
And then when you read on further down, you see that once he finds out who Ruth is, he instructs the foreman, make sure she's not mistreated, like other girls that are going out and gleaning can happen in other fields. We don't behave that way in the Boaz farm. And, and so, again, just an example of a good employee-employer relationship with a, with a good boss. If you're at work and your boss comes up to you and says, Hi, how are you doing? The Lord bless you. <laughs> Would be a pretty uh, out of the ordinary response to them, wouldn't it? Well, Job, one of my favorite characters in the Bible, Job, one of my favorite books in the Bible is Job. In chapter 31, 13, 31 verse 13, There we go. Job is, is talking about a bunch of different things. Uh, and, and in amongst all these different things he's talking about, in verse 13 he says, If I have denied justice to my men servants and maidservants when they had a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when called to account? Did not he who made me in the womb make them also? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? So there's a good attitude to have about the people we rub shoulders with. Didn't God make them too? They're people. They're not just things I react to, stimuli that I respond to, and I sometimes get mad at. All those people you're rubbing shoulders with are a way for you to glorify God in the way you respond to them. So that's Job. How about the Good Samaritan in Luke 10? Let's turn to that and look at that for a minute. So I'm going to skip ahead through most of the parable. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, this is starting in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now let's think about that Samaritan for a minute. He was heading off to Jericho. This was the road to Jericho. The Samaritan, Jericho was the center of commerce in the Middle East at the time. The, the Samaritan was probably a fairly wealthy businessman on his way to Jericho to conduct business. If that Samaritan did not have a profitable business, he would not have had the resources to take care of this broken and hurt man that he found on the side of the road. We have a saying in C12, I'm wearing my logo today, uh, about profitability in business. With no margin, there's no mission. If there's no profit margin, there's no funding for the mission. So I, I teach and I urge and I counsel my businessmen that, I, that I'm an executive coach for, 
you got to have a profitable business because that's the way not only do you grow your business but and and reimburse your stockholders and your shareholders but it's also a way for you to advance the kingdom by the way you provide employee benefits by the way you impact your community around you with no margin there's no mission all right well let's look at zebedee in mark 1 Zebedee, as some of you may be familiar with, was the father of James and John, who went on to be two of Jesus' primary disciples. So in Mark 1, starting in verse 19, Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee, and when he'd gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and follow Jesus. So, what was Zebedee's vocation? He was a commercial fisherman, and he was a prominent enough commercial fisherman that he had hired hands. He probably had more than one boat. He had enough margin, enough resources, that he could afford to let his two sons, James and John, go off and be missionaries with Jesus. Zebedee was a pretty prominent businessman. He probably most likely supported supported James and John and even Jesus financially through his business of being a fisherman. All right, now further on in the the New Testament, uh, Lydia, the Thyatira. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that word right, but it was in Asia Minor. We're told that in, in Acts 16 that she was a dealer in purple cloth. While in Philippi, now not Thyatira, She offered hospitality to Paul after she accepted the gospel and got saved. She brought them into her home. She was obviously wealthy enough to have a home in Thyatira, probably where her manufacturing business was. And by the way, purple cloth back then was not made with chemicals necessarily. It was made with natural things like snails. Purple, the color purple, was made by harvesting a whole bunch of snails, grinding up the innards of those snails, and turning them into purple dye. It took, I'm told, about 10,000 snails to make enough purple dye to dye one robe. So, again, Lydia, whether she inherited it from her husband and was a widow, we don't know, but she was a prominent businesswoman, probably wealthy, enough so that she could offer Paul hospitality while he was in Philippi. By the way, by the time of the 4th century, purple was so precious that only emperors were allowed to wear purple. And in the 1st century, back when Paul and Lydia were doing things, by the way, we have someone named after her, don't we? (laughs) That's pretty cool. But in the 1st century, only the very wealthy could afford purple dye, purple dyed clothing. So now let's, let's do one more. Paul was a tent maker. Paul made tents. And think about it. If if Paul didn't make high-quality enough tents that people wanted to buy, he wouldn't have been able to support himself for two years while he lived for a while in Corinth for a while. Um, So Paul made probably, I speculate, doesn't say so, but he probably made pretty high-quality tents, enough so that people wanted to buy them. 
And he partnered with Aquila and Priscilla, who were also tent makers. So if you read in Acts 18, you'll get a little bit more of that story. People tend to forget that Paul had two partners, business partners, that had come from Rome after they got kicked out of Rome. So, my final question is this. Where has God put you? As we saw in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God put Adam in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. He's given you a task too. Wherever you find yourself right now, that's most likely your calling for now to be there and to glorify God in the way you be there. Is it as a mom? Is it as a student? Is it as two of our members are, do they build homes for a living? Is it as a nurse? Is it a volunteer at a nonprofit? Is it as a child doing your chores? Or is it a pastor like Kevin? Or a photographer like Karen? Whatever God has placed you, that is your calling to glorify Him in the way you do your job. You have a rich opportunity to glorify God in your, in your vocation. Don't miss out on that opportunity. Remember, nobody does not worship. We're either worshiping God by the way we do our vocation or we're not. But we are continuously outpouring. We are continuously worshiping. So, my final charge to you is this. Let us slough off the sinful aspects of pride or greed or laziness and worship God as we work. Let us worship God as we work. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to explore your word and see examples of prominent business people as they glorified you in the way they worked. And Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity now to worship you by the way we work. We pray that you would open our eyes to ways that we can do it in much more multitudinous ways. And we thank you for that opportunity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.